Come on, Red. Okay. Okay. Quaff. Sun on the horizon, condense, circle, time. I call with all my heart, answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your laws. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, O Lord, and, your, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. I'm listening to this psalm right now in the car, and it's so nice. The uh, word of promise has all of the translators or not translators, all of the people that read the books of the Bible in their, their, their reading, they all read one section of it. Oh, really? And it's really nice. It's just very nice to hear. Um, let's see here. We have uh, ninth today. Nine. It's not February, though, is it? So give me a second. It always helps to be in the right month. I got the right day this time, so that's something. Okay, March 9th. They won against all odds. On December 16th, 167 BC, the Syrian ruler Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem by offering the flesh of a pig as a sacrifice on an altar to Zeus, constructed over the altar of burnt offering, um, which is found in 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, and Daniel. In the following year, Antiochus decreed that everyone in Palestine sacrificed to the heathen gods under an imperial representative's supervision. Uh, Matthias, an aged priest, had moved with his family from Jerusalem to the village of Modin, 17 miles north of, northwest of Jerusalem, to escape the idolatry of Antiochus. When Antiochus's officers finally came to Modin, they forced Matthias' his five sons and the other villagers to assemble before an altar the officers had built. The officers addressed Matthias, you are a leader honored and great in the city and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands. But in a loud voice, Matthias replied, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers, yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Be far be it from us, to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. When Matthias finished speaking, a Jew came forward to offer his sacrifice, and Matthias ran up and killed him on the altar. He then killed the officer who had commanded them to sacrifice and tore down the altar. Then Matthias called out with a loud voice, let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. With that battle cry, Matthias and his sons fled into the hills where many Jews followed them. From the hills, they conducted guerrilla warfare with leadership passing to his son Judas called Maccabeus, which means hammer, because of the blows he inflicted on the Syrians. The name was applied to Judas's brothers and then to all who took part in the rebellion. The, fir the first battles of the Maccabean, excuse me, 
revolt during the 160s BC were against the Syrian army leader by Nicanor, led by Nicanor. In 166 BC, the Syrians were so sure that Nicanor would defeat Judas that they brought traitors along to buy Jewish slaves. However, the Maccabees were victorious. In 164 BC, after three years of fighting, Judas won control of Jerusalem. He cleansed and rededicated the temple with songs and harps and lutes, cymbals. The eight-day celebration was the beginning of Hanukkah, the Jewish, Jewish feast of dedication, or lights. The fight was ongoing, though the leaders of Syria changed. Nicanor continued as commander-in-chief of the Syrian forces, waging war against the Maccabees. Finally, in 161 BC, the Syrian ruler Demetrius I Soter, the nephew of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, sent Nicanor and his army one more time against Judas Maccabees. On March 9, 161 BC, before the battle, Judas prayed, O sovereign of the heavens, send a good angel to carry terror and trembling before us. By the might of thy arm, may these blasphemers who come against thy holy people be struck down. God answered, Judas was victorious, and Nicanor was killed. The Jews celebrate this day, the 13th of Adar, in the Jewish calendar as Nicanor's day. Although as the years passed, the Maccabean dynasty became less noble in their purposes, they set up an independent nation that lasted until 63 BC when Pompey established a Roman protectorate over Palestine. From 2 Maccabees chapter 15, it says, What was the reason for the success of the Maccabees? Before the final battle with Nicanor, Judas Maccabeus, perceiving the hosts that were before him and the varied supply of arms and the savagery of the elephants, stretched out his hands toward heaven and called upon the Lord who works wonders, for he knew it is not by arms, but as the Lord decides that he gains the victory for those who deserve it. And then from Hebrews 11.33, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. Good stuff. Okay, uh, is, uh, does anybody know where that is recorded in the Bible, the Feast of Dedication? No. What's that? Book of John, that's correct. Um, let's see if we can find that very quickly here. Um, uh, let's see here. Let me just pull this out and... Uh, uh, let's see here, where am I going? Right here, and then we're going to go right here, and then we're going to go right here. And uh, I should have this at the top of my hand, but at the top of my head, but I don't. So let's see here. Um, we want to go right here, and it says in John, I was going to say John 8, and I would have been wrong. Uh, John chapter 10 and verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Feast of Dedication is what that is referring to in uh, what we just read in the uh, history of the Maccabees. So there you go. And that's where the, you know, the Hanukkah with the uh, eight-branched uh, menorah goes back to that feast because they had enough oil to last them one day while they were consecrating the temple. And it lasted eight days. And so that's the miracle of the lights. And so there you go. Okay, now I've got, I think, just one prayer request. Um, uh, did you know that if you, I didn't know this, and somebody sent this to me, and so uh, 
Uh, I had to actually check it online. If you take the rib out of a man, what happens? Well, that's true. <laughs> Eve does come. Uh, the rib will grow back when the perichondrium, perichondrium, yeah, the perichondrium is left. Your rib will actually grow back in two to three months. So one of those Wait interesting little, yeah. No. It's true. I, I actually went online because somebody sent it to me. I'm like, you know, I'm going to check this. And I went online and it says, if you leave the perichondrium. Pericardium. It is. Pericardium. Did I say that wrong? It is. Hang on. That's, that's not true. I used to take out the 12th rib all the time going to kidneys. And they never grew back. Did you leave the para? Yes, you did. Okay, because it says, I'm going to read this because I've got a doctor in the place and I don't want anything that uh, I say on the... Nobody tries at all. Does, does, wait, wait, hang on. Does the rib grow back? Just because it back says so on Google, if you leave, well, it's not Google; it's a medical site. Ooh, Just be quiet for a second. If you leave, leave the per perichondrium, I think is what it was, um, pericardium uh, in. Okay, and here's what it says. Hang on. Does the rib cartilage grow back if the perichondrium is left in? That which is what it is. It no, says, that's not the bone. Uh, well, cartilage. Listen, I just am, let me read what I'm reading because that's what I said. Um, it says here, hang on, what is the difference between a perichondrium and do ribs grow back after surgery? Um, uh, however, when they remove the rib cartilage but left its perichondrium, this is from uh, the missing sections, entirely repaired within one to two months. And there are several medical sites that say this. If you leave, so the doctor says no, several sites say yes, I'll let you do your own research, but somebody sent that to me. I just thought that was an interesting fact. You do your own research. What's that? The what? We'll take it out of Rick. Take it out of Rick. Okay, we got to go on. Um, I have one prayer request for Nick in Montana. Okay, uh, Nick in Montana is a guy that struggles with pain. He, he is... Uh, in such bad shape that he needs a certain type of medicine to keep him going just to simply function. And they've taken that away from him, and uh, so they want to give him instead something that's actually almost lethal. And uh, so just keep him in prayer. They do have one option where if somebody comes to his house and administers it, that he can have this. And so anyway, he's a great guy. I've known him for years, and uh, he just uh, emailed, and he uh, just mentioned that. So keep Rick, uh, Nick in prayer. And um, the doctor says that is not true, okay? And he said he's done many surgeries, so uh, we'll leave it at that. But uh, there are sites on, medical sites on the internet that say it. So do your own research. Don't send me your research, okay? I'm done with this issue. I've just reported what I was sent, and then I did my own researches. So, okay. You brought it up. Well, yeah, I brought, and that's why I've said what I've said. I don't need to hear any more about it, yes. Did they take out the perichondrium? Well, I don't know. Well, there you go. That's the point is that I just said if you leave this in, we are told don't make a big deal out of this. Please let's stop. Okay. It's not. It's chondrium. C-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. That's how it's spelled. So it's not pericardium. That's a heart thing. Okay. That's not what it is. Okay. So anyway, I've said what I've said. Do your own research. I've got one doctor in the place that says that's not true. I've got some people here that say it is, and 
go have your rib removed, have them leave the perichondrium in, and see what happens. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we can ask, no, ask Adam. She was taken out of Eve, so Adam would be the one to have it grow back. Okay, we got to get started, please, please. We're in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. There we go. I'll back it up uh, to the beginning of the paragraph. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you also became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and the living and true God. Okay, it's rather close. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, there you go. Uh, let's see here. Um, that's the explanation for repentance. Repentance. I, I don't know what you just said. What? That's the explanation for repentance. Turn to God from idols. To, yes, absolutely. To turn to God from idols. To, to change your mind is repentance. That would be the actual definition. Metanoia. Change your mind. Okay? And so if you want to turn from idols and you're doing it with a change of mind, then that is exactly what that is. Correct. But... Um, uh, anyway, we'll go ahead. Um, let's see here. The word they of this verse that I just read, 1-9, uh, is speaking of those noted in verse 8. It includes those in Macedonia and Achaia and in every place. Paul's words, in every place. Wherever people had come across the believers who were in Thessalonica, Paul says they themselves declared concerning us what matter of entry we had to you. What this means is that Paul and those with him didn't need to speak of anything about their time spent at Thessalonica. Instead, wherever they went, they found that the message which they originally had brought to the Thessalonians had taken root and was effective. This was testified to by any and all who encountered a person who was from Thessalonica. Paul and those with him had a most effective entry. The door was opened, and they, along with their gospel message, was heartily received. The evidence was, as he says, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, remember what we uh, mentioned last week is that uh, it'll say in the book of Acts that the Bereans were no more noble than the Thessalonians because they went to Scripture and they searched these things out. Um, he's obviously speaking to uh, Gentiles here, not so much the Jews, because the Jews would have been the ones to search out the Scriptures. But the general sentiment of Thessalonica is that they were willing to accept things without checking it, okay? Which is a good thing that they turned from the idols, but um, we got a group of people, the Jewish people in particular in Thessalonica, that simply either dismissed something or accepted it, but they didn't really check scripture. So kind of keep that in mind with uh, the people that may be leading in Thessalonica because they were Jews, they may have been in the leadership position or something. But the good thing is that the 
Gentiles themselves had just said, hey, we accept this message, we're accepting it wholeheartedly, and we're turning away from the idols that are in our lives. And it makes me think of the people that uh, the folks in Pakistan send us again and again about their uh, reports that they have concerning, uh, uh, you know, the conversions that they have and the people that, uh, uh, you know, I haven't read this one. I got it and I printed it off. I just got one. Let me go get that. And um, I think I have it over here. And if I do, that would be great. I can read you what it's what they said. Um, I do. Okay, this is, they just had another uh, film in Pakistan. So we'll see if, if we had that. Yeah, I, like I say, I printed it off and I was so busy, I left and I didn't read it. So it says here, um, uh, dear brother Charlie and Daniel, Daniel's the guy in the UK. Um, greetings to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our savior. Uh, in the first of all, and I'll read this Sunday to the church, but we are very pleased to share with you the report of the Jesus film meeting. That went very well by God's grace. His help is always very encouraging to us to serve him effectively and successfully. This is a result of your prayers, help, and love. We came to know the people who are having great interest to know the true God, and they always seek the truth. This provides them the opportunity. Keep thinking of the people, the Gentiles in Thessalonica. The people are having great interest to know him. This provides them the opportunity to learn about God and his son, Jesus. We share things about this Jesus film meeting as below. Um, I had prayer of thanksgiving to God in the beginning of this meeting. It remained very good, a very good time for those who came to this meeting. People watched the film with interest. Many shared that they came to learn about Jesus for the first time. People came to know God's love through this wonderful opportunity. There were 38 people that came to the meeting. Seven. Uh, I do remember reading that. That's the one thing I scanned down to see if they had success. Seven people came to believe in Jesus as their personal savior. We had a prayer session in the meeting with people. Some shared their prayer requests also. There was a nice time of fellowship to each other. We took tea and a refreshment at the end of this meeting and I prayed the closing prayer at the end of the meeting. And then he handed out MP3s. Um, let's see here, MP3s, MP3s, okay. Um, uh, and then food, this remained very encouraging to the people. They came with great excitement to attend the meeting. Some of these shared that they are happy to attend this meeting. 35 that came to the meeting, we served food among these men, women, and children. They were very happy and thankful to God. They're very poor new believer families. They have a lack of food because of low earning. They are glad that God is good to them and providing them the food. Um, so uh, good, and he did provide pictures, which I looked at, but I didn't get to read the whole thing. And so that is what happened. And these were Hindus. Most of the people in his area are Hindus. And so they are doing exactly what we're reading about in, uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians here. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So where was I with that? Um, uh, yes, okay. Uh, there are two parts to this. First, they turned to God from idols. As Burke had said, that would be kind of repentance of uh, what they are doing, a turning to God. This was a necessary part of the equation. equation and it is something that they did with zeal. Pagan idolatry is something warned against throughout scripture. False idols are nothing, and serving such a thing shows a complete disconnect with any notion of there being one true God. If you think, you know, you watch, I like to watch things, India and South Asia, and I just, you know, it's the part of the world I spent a lot of time in, and um, I was watching something about India just a couple days ago, what was it? And uh, I think it was a great architecture in the world or something. Anyway, they showed these Hindu temples. And I mean, there's just a God on every corner and all over the face, hundreds of them. These people are 
praying to him and leaving stuff to him and all this kind of stuff. And that's exactly what these people would have been doing. You know, they've got these idols in their town. They've got a big statue or something, and they're just bringing offerings to him. And uh, it's showing, like I said, there's a disconnect between the true God and what they are doing. Because if, God, you know, the God of the universe is real, he's certainly not visible in a picture. We're limiting him to a a thing of our own imagination, okay? And so that immediately sets up a wall between you and God because God is spirit. There, We can't close our eyes and come to a picture of who God is. We just can't do it, okay? And if we do, then we are creating a false God, a false notion of what God is like, okay? Now, having said that, Jesus is the image, the representation of God in human flesh. That's made explicit in Colossians chapter 1. So when we see Jesus, we see the expression of who he is. He is the God-man, but he is the human that is revealing God to us. Okay, we're not seeing God when we're seeing Jesus. We are seeing Jesus who is God, if that makes any sense at all. Okay, Jesus is a human being. We're seeing a human being, okay? But he is also God, okay? We're not seeing God. We're seeing the man who is also God. If you can see God, then you would be God because God is infinite, okay? And so there's there's never going to be a time when we stand in heaven and say, I see the Father. That's not the way it works, okay? We will see Jesus revealing the Father to us endlessly, ceaselessly for all eternity, okay? Um, God is you know, as he's expressed elsewhere in the Bible. He is in an unapproachable white light. He's, um, uh, what are some of the other, no man can see him and live and all these kind of uh, verses that are in there that explain that God is not something that we can see, but Jesus is the expression of who God is because he united with human flesh. Okay, uh, don't want to say too much and then get off on saying something incorrect because you have to be very, very precise when you're speaking about the incarnation or the Trinity in particular. As soon as you start going off just a little bit, next thing you know, you're getting into heresy. Okay, that's why when you uh, do a sermon, for example, on the Trinity, I know everything I type on the sermon, everything I say in the sermon is written down. But when you're talking especially about things like the Trinity, you want to have it written down because you, you don't want to suddenly say something that will be instilled in somebody's mind that is incorrect. It has to be thought through very carefully. So if you want to know, go back and watch the uh, Doctrine Trinity sermon, and I lay it out from Scripture there. So all throughout the Old Testament, that's clearly stated, and without any wiggle room whatsoever, you cannot see, approach? Well, no, because it does say in Genesis 18 that Jehovah right. appeared to Abraham with two other right. people. Well, wouldn't that and be so pre-incarnate? That would be, well, I would call it the eternal Christ. Okay. I would not say okay. pre-incarnate because that's a logical contradiction. Right. I know people use that term, but well, uh, pre-incarnate means that he was incarnate before he was incarnate. That's and that's, that's, so he is the eternal Christ and he happened to show up in his own uh, history, we'll say. Right. But um, uh, the Jews will absolutely dismiss that God can be seen in human flesh. Well, that's that's not true. Jesus is not God because God cannot be. And all you need to do is take him right back to the Old Testament and say, well, here he is in front of Abraham. Here he is appearing to the father of uh, Samson, Manoah, the father of Samson. He's also appearing to uh, Jephthah in Judges 
chapter six. He's appearing to Joshua in uh, you know uh, right before the battle of um, uh, Jericho, etc. He mm-hmm. he right. appears to them the Lord. It's explicit. It says Jehovah appeared to this person or right. that. Or in the case of um, Joshua, it's not explicit. It says the commander of the Lord's army. But he does what he would only do before the Lord. Take off your shoes, this is holy ground, and then he submits himself to him, just as Moses did at the bush. So we know that that is the Lord. Other such verses are explicit, okay? We have no doubt that he appeared to them. So if a Jew ever gives you that, you want to take him and say, that's not true. Your scriptures say otherwise, okay? Because they will deny that Jesus can be the God-man. He is. Yes? The exact representation of his nature. That's right. The exact representation of his nature. That's right. And nature isn't something you can actually see except as it is expressed. My nature is expressed. That's right. Oh, yeah. Hebrews 1.3. I was thinking of Colossians 1 still because it's very similar, but that's right. Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1 also. What a great couple of verses there. It uh, proves uh, quite a few things about him. He is the sustainer of the universe, just as Paul says in Colossians 1. I mean, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is just a marvelous set of verses. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, sort of living in true God. Uh, oh, yeah, the uh, pagan idolatry, disconnect. Okay, however, uh, there is only this is only one half of the equation, talking about false gods, etc. Many people will turn from idols in order to serve God, but they do not worship him in the proper manner. Just because you're turning from idols does not mean that you are now worshiping God properly. A person may join Mormonism and stop being a Hindu, but he's not worshiping God properly. And so we have two parts to this equation. Okay, an example of, oh, here it is. An example of this is Mormonism. Mormons go around the world to make converts. They convert people from pagan idols, but they do not lead them to the truth of God as is revealed in Jesus Christ. Why? What is the doctrine of Mormonism concerning Christ? He was a man who became a god. Okay, and someday you will become a god. And you'll rule your own little universe and you get to be your own savior and all that kind of crazy stuff. Okay, so Mormonism is not a true extension of Christianity. And in fact, uh, it, it's evident right from what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. You know, even if an angel from heaven comes and proclaims to you a gospel other than this, let him be anathema. And what happened? He claimed that the angel moron came to him and gave him the third gospel, the another gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually not moron, but it's moronic, so I called him moron. Anyway, um, it's moroni, but... um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I feel bad for people that are stuck in a cult like that, but they are in a cult, and they have to come to the proper understanding of Jesus Christ or they will not be saved, okay? Uh, just because you intend well does not mean that you will finish well, okay? And so you, yes? Do JWs uh, say they're Christians? They do. As a matter of fact, Mormons and JWs are lumped under all Christian numbers. When they count numbers of Christians, they just say that's a denomination because they they don't know any better, and they claim that they're Christians, but Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians, okay? They are, uh, once again, an aberrant sect. They believe that Jesus Christ was created. He's a created being, and uh, so they manipulate their scriptures to justify that, such as Colossians 1, whatever, 118 or whatever, where it says he created all other things which can't even be inferred in there and they just put the word in there because that's the only way they can justify that he's not God. 
Anyway, um, God created a being to be killed for our sins. Well, that's not salvation of the Lord at all, okay? That's salvation of God creating a being who died for our sins. It's no different than sacrificing a bull or a goat, okay? Just happened to be a man instead. But uh, I'm sorry, they have to get that correct. And as sad as I feel for these people, they are the ones that are either unwilling to check or they have been deluded and they're just not going to check, but whatever. I, uh, it, it, it's a sad place to be in. If you talk to them, it's like talking to a wall most of the time. You get no response at all. You, you, there's no response. All, I'm going to go check with the elders and you never hear from them again. Or they come back and they spout to you uh, what the elders said, which isn't what the Bible says. And then you tell them what's correct. And they say, well, I'm going to go back and check with the elders and you'll never get anywhere with them. So unless they are willing, and I've said this before, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, it does say in uh, 2 John, you're not to welcome them to their house or greet them lest you share in their wicked work. Don't do it, okay? But if you are going to talk to them and say, I'm not greeting you as a Christian, I'm talking to you as a person that needs to be evangelized, the way that I would approach it with them is make it simple, okay? You're not gonna convince them from your arguments about who Jesus is because they've got their thing in their head about who Jesus is. I would tell them to go back and do a study of every term concerning Jehovah in the book of Isaiah. What does, it say, what does he say about himself? What are the titles used of him? What are the things that it says that he does? And then compare that to Jesus in the New Testament. And you will find out that they are one being. I am the Lord, my glory I will not give to another. Uh, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I am the one who searches hearts and minds. I am the one who searches hearts and minds. Go through Isaiah and compare. There, there's 50 or 60 of them. And if they can't come to a resolution that this is speaking of the same being, you're not going to convince them any, way, could, any other way. Could yes. you say um, that, uh, Jesus, that the Father is an essence of himself in, in Jesus, therefore he, they are in essence of the same? No, because the Father and the Son are not the same. They're one in essence, but you wouldn't want to term it that way because he sent the Son, okay? Uh, it, it, you, you want to be precise when you're speaking about that. He sent his Son. Uh, the Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one essence, but three persons. And so I, I, you may be able to say that, but that would not be appropriate terminology, and you wouldn't want to, uh, you know, uh, confuse them. Um, what I would do is I would just say that the Bible is very clear that God entered into the stream of human existence. The, uh, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, um, Luke 1, whatever, where he says, and uh, uh, so the Spirit of God uh, will come upon you and that thing which is born in you shall be holy. Well, uh, now what they do though, and the problem with that is that they deny that the Holy Spirit is God. And so there is no Trinity. There's just a monadic God. And then you've got the uh, Holy Spirit to them as an active force, Essence. which, yeah, it doesn't mean anything, okay? Uh, but they, they call him the active force, okay? An active force cannot be offended. An active force cannot um, think. And all of the things that we ascribe to God, we ascribe to the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about scripture. Uh, so, um, you know, once again, they're taking something that doesn't exist and they're inserting it into their theology. And they've got that in their head. So, you know, debating them with the nature of the Trinity isn't really going to work with them. And that's why I say what I would do is I would tell them, go back and review 
the words of Isaiah. Just go through and every single thing that Isaiah says about the Lord or that the Lord says in Isaiah about himself, take those things and then compare them to the New Testament. That's what I would do because otherwise you're just, you're arguing apples and they're arguing oranges even though it's the same verses because they're looking at it from a completely different paradigm. Um, uh, and, you know, it, I, I would just not get into a discussion of, the, you know, their argument with the Trinity is that the Trinity is not ever mentioned in the Bible. And, you know, you can counter that with, well, neither is original sin, but it's taught in the Bible, okay? Or, you know, they'll argue the rapture is never mentioned in the Bible. Well, that's true, but, you know, we've got all these other doctrines that are never mentioned in the Bible, but they're clearly taught, okay? They may not be explicitly said, this is original sin, or this is this, but it's taught in there. So just, that, that isn't what you would call an argument from silence, just because the Bible doesn't say something explicitly doesn't mean that it's not implicitly taught. Anyway, um, I would stick with just that one, one issue. Take Isaiah, tell him, take the, this information from Isaiah, go through it very thoroughly, and then go through the New Testament. And obviously what they'd need to do is they would need, now even in the, the New World Translation, they could probably come up very clearly what is being said. Um, the problem with the New World Te uh, yeah, the New World Translation, though, is that um, they've got it just like King James only people. They've got it in their head that this is the only authorized version and we shouldn't be reading any other versions. And the problem with that is that it didn't exist when the Jehovah's Witnesses started. Okay, they started with the King James Version. And so, you know, it, how could it be that this is the only valid translation if you guys started with this translation over here? So, once again, there's not clear thinking in there. But once you have something drummed into your head, you will generally tend to not listen to any other uh, thing. They have to come to this through their own studies. And I would say that letting the Bible speak for itself, just let that happen. Don't debate these people. And as it says, do not greet these people, nor welcome them, lest you share in their wicked work. I, wouldn't, I would not treat them as a brother in Christ. I treat them as a person that needs to be evangelized and that you have no fellowship with them at all as a believer in Jesus. And then you're not erring in any way in regard to what Scripture says. But anyway. But they, I, always, they always come at you with two people. Oh, yeah, they always come in twos. Is the person who's doing all the talking is the newbie. Right. So if you can just focus the gospel on that person, and every time that the other person butts in, you're scoring. Because they're like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're not going to handle this thing correctly. I know you're not. And like, you know, so then they'll start doing it. It's like, you know, but he is God, right? And and usually the newbie is, is, a, is a confused Christian, enough to, con yeah. confused Christian. So like, if you can just stick with the, they know that's, that Jesus is God. So like, you know, he's, she's trying to tell you differently. It's like, you know. It's, yeah, you've got to come to decide this. what you want to do. So right. like, you know, there, there's a conquer, split and divide. It, it works it may well work. It all depends if they, if they keep if so. they keep their claws in them and they're willing to allow that to happen. I've actually seen them break down and cry because they get so conflicted. Right. They're like, right. uh, uh, but that's you know, good. You want well, that's exactly what you want. You want them to understand that what they're being taught is incorrect. Right. It is leading them down the wrong path. But if they weren't saved, they will never be saved. If they were saved, they're just going to spend the rest of their life in misery. That's that's all there's going to happen my, to them. My son-in-law is a job. Yeah, he knows this personally because he has to deal with this guy. He's Anyway, I won't get into it. Um, uh, so anyway, they turn from pagan idols. They do not lead them to the truth of God as is revealed in Jesus Christ, just what we're saying. 
But Paul notes that those in Thessalonica had not only turned from God, uh, from idols, but they did so in order to serve the living and true God. So they had done both. They had not just turned away from what is wrong to something else that's wrong. They had turned away from what is wrong to what is correct. Okay, so you got to make sure that right. both half of the equations, because you say, oh, that guy's had a great change in his life. He doesn't go to the idols anymore and blah, blah. doesn't matter if he's going to the, you know, the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. That change is, it, it, he might as well just be back in the uh, temple worshiping, uh, you know, idols or something. Anyway, he will explain this. A uh, uh, couple people just arrived off the airplane from Dallas, Texas. So they're a wow. couple minutes late. Yeah. Jet uh, he, setters. They are. They're jet setting jet setters that set the jet. Okay, he will explain this more in the next verse, which is 110. The conversion of the Thessalonians was away from idolatry and toward God. And it was done without having been duped into a false idea of what God is like. Their service was to him as the true God. Salvation had come to them, and then this truth about them became evident to all. Wonderful words, and it's just like what we're seeing in our friends in Pakistan. That we got them, uh, they've come to a, a full realization that Jesus is God, and not only that, but they just want to keep telling people about this. And, um, you know, I emailed them today. They've been doing this month after month for, I guess it's been five, six, seven months. I don't know how long it's been. But I said, um, you know, what we should probably do is uh, see if we can get a projector for you instead of renting one month after month. You know, there's just no end to it. I said, what we should do is see if you can do this so that, you know, if suppose we have an economic collapse or something and we can only give a certain amount every month instead of funding the whole thing, we, we have to think about the future. And uh, uh, so he's going to check into that, and I hope he can do that because I would like him to have it where he can do it anytime he wants. And if it costs us a little bit up front, but he can do this more readily, and then money we do have can pay, feed more people and get more people to come. Even if it's just for the food, you know, they like those two last week they came for the food but they stayed for the Jesus right so the um, projector is it run off a computer or is I it don't know how he okay, does it I have no idea well that's why I asked him <laughs> tell us what you can do and how we can help you to what's well I don't know I mean it's Pakistan so when I was in Malaysia there were things there you could go and get food for almost nothing and then you'd want to buy a car and it's like 10 times as much as America it was just insane so, um, but then crazy enough, they had, you know, the uh, uh, lock, lock your car with the uh, thing. They had that years before we ever had in America, probably 10 years before. I'd never even heard of that. I'm 1993, I go into Malaysia and every car in the country goes, uh, uh, and I'm like, where's the dog, you know? So anyway, it, it's just odd how things are. And so I don't know, it could be, you know, $20,000 to get a movie projector or it may be 50 bucks. I have no idea. But there's no point in continuing to do something if you can do it more efficiently. So anyway, that's what I said. I mean, we'll see how it goes. But um, life application. There is one God, and many believe this, but they do not serve this one true God properly. How many gods do Muslims believe there are? One. One. Are they serving God properly? Absolutely not. Okay. This is all over the world. There are people that believe in one God. All kinds of religions do this, but it doesn't mean they're serving them properly. And within the supposed umbrella of Christianity, there's all kinds of people that call themselves Christians and believe in one God, and they don't serve him properly. And believing in a trinity does not mean that we believe in three gods. That is a 
Anybody? Triad. Trinity is one God in three persons. A triad is three gods sitting up on, you know, a, a podium looking down on everybody. That's a triad, which is a logical impossibility. There cannot be more than one God. Okay, we learned that from the uh, 12 first principles. We don't even need the Bible to know that. We can simply think it through. There must be only one God. But if God is a monad, which is what the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would teach or what the Muslims would teach, then that God would never extend beyond himself. Right. There would be no creation, okay, because he would be perfectly contained within himself. He would have no need to go beyond his own being. But a trinity can because it understands the concept of love, of fellowshipping, of sharing, of Community. creating. Okay, and so we can deduce these things without a Bible. Okay, and the problem is that Christians aren't willing to do deduce those things with a Bible. And when I say Christians, I'm talking about the big umbrella. Okay, or Muslims. They they there would not be a creation if God was a monad. Okay. So anyway, uh, verse one ten. And to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay, that was 10. Uh, let's see here. Oh, it's the last verse of the uh, chapter. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So it's very close, okay? Oh, I thought you were raising your hand. He's over there yawning. Should have just stayed home, gone home and gotten some. I couldn't do it if I was traveling like that. I mean, I've done it, obviously. We did it a couple years ago, but uh, uh, anyway, yeah, no. Mm, I, I'd be like, I can't do this. Um, okay, this verse is a continuation of the previous one. So together they read, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned from God I'm to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay, now, if I was a Jehovah's Witness, I'd look at that and I'd say, see, it's speaking of the true God and his son. And so they're not the same thing. Not taking the entire word of God in context, okay? I'm just taking a verse, I'm ripping out of its context, and I'm saying, see, the Son isn't God because it says that God raised him from, etc., etc., okay? But that negates all of the other theology that's found in the Bible that clearly teaches that Jesus is God. The human Jesus died. He w Did God die, anybody? No. no. Okay, the human Jesus died. So when a pastor says, well, God died on the cross, that's a, a error in thinking. It's an error in theology, and it's an error in his sermon. Okay, God didn't die on the cross. God never stopped existing. But Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, died on the cross, paying our sin debt. If the humanity of Jesus Christ died on the cross, then, by default, he had to be raised. Okay, and Jesus says, I do, uh, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own, and I take it up again my own. Okay, who is saying that? Obviously, God in Christ is saying that because he's giving up his human life and he's taking it up again. Okay, so you just take these verses all throughout Scripture and you make a, you develop a theology out of them. That is what's called systematic theology. And not all systematic theology is correct. I mean, John Calvin had a systematic theology, and Norman Geisler had a systematic theology, and R.C. Sproul had a systematic theology. This is what's taught in 
higher um, education in uh, you know, Christian seminaries as you start with lower things and eventually you work up to systematic theology and they say now go develop your system, okay? And you may lean towards Calvin or you may say I'm just going to develop one all by myself and I'm going to see where it goes, whatever. But systematic theology says I'm taking all of this information and I'm coming to a conclusion. To just take this one verse and say, see, God, Jesus, they can't be the same thing, okay? Well, that's an error. Okay, so you need to have a more global perspective on certain things, and you know, this is a problem. When you know, I type a sermon, I will have a very myopic view of what I'm doing. I'll get down to a single word and look at it for an hour sometimes. No kidding, he knows this. And I'll email him about that word, and then he spends an hour on it sometimes too. Right? So, and that's not a global view of things. I'm trying to get information out. And then what I have to do, and I don't always end up doing this because the day is so long, but I try to step back and I say, now what is the global picture that this is? And this is the hardest part of these, these Joshua sermons is, uh, I just handed her, Jody, how many, five or six? Okay, she wants, she, I told Don, I handed him to him actually, and I said, Don, if you see her start going catatonic or reaching for the window of the uh, airplane, you know, I, she's got a lot of stuff to do because she wants to, while they're going over to a certain country in a mission trip in the next few weeks, she says, well, give me all your sermons and I'll just review them for all the errors that she loves to find. And um, so anyway, um, the hardest part of this, I did, we'll say this this week, was uh, four or five sermons, uh, uh, verses. It wasn't a real long passage. And I take those verses, this is the last inheritance. There's seven inheritances to be doled out to the uh, to the uh, last seven tribes that don't have their inheritances. And you've got Dan and Naphtali and Asher and you know Zebulun, you've got all these, and it's only a few verses on each, but each one of them is telling us something. And so you have uh, this last one, it's five verses long, and so I'm gonna look at it. And I'm gonna have a very myopic view on each verse. And the first verse, I usually spend two or three hours looking at the first verse, because I wanna get something to establish the baseline for the rest of what's going on in those verses, okay? And so I'm looking at everything very myopically. Now I have to present it to you saying, this is what God is telling us about this inheritance of, for example, Asher, all right? And so you have to sit back, and yet I will sit and read the whole sermon, like eight times, and I keep reading it, and I'm thinking, what are you telling us? What are you telling us? And finally, it's happened every time, thank the Lord, because I'm always asking, I'm talking to him before I start the sermon, and after, after I started, and when I'm done, and I'm asking, what are you telling us? And each one has come up with its own picture. Okay, this week, this Sunday sermon, it's giving us a picture of something concerning the inheritance of Jesus. And it took me probably two hours. I'm done with the sermon typing because it's only a couple verses in um, maybe by 11 o'clock. And I'm thinking, oh, I'll have the rest of the day off. And I'll start thinking about it and I'll look up and it's two o'clock and I haven't started typing anything about what it's telling us. And so you have to go from the limited view, the first verse, and then you have to go back and look at the global view. What is, is this telling me that Jesus is not God? Or is it 
already explained elsewhere. And like I said, you want to do this. You don't want to just get fixed on a single verse. But one of my friends, he emailed me today with some questions about a passage in the book of John. And he said, what do you think about this? And I asked him about his conclusion. And I said, where did you get that? And he explained, and I said, well, that's, you have to go back and you have to look at the entire passage. And I reminded him that there were no chapter divisions when these books were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, whatever. It was just one long scroll. And so if you just take this, you might come to that conclusion, but you've ignored what it says in the chapter before, which is what that's leading up to. So be careful with that type of thing. The whole point of everything I said about the sermon and everything else is to remind you that just because it says that God raised Jesus, it does not mean that God is, Jesus is not God, okay? And so have your, your, your closed in view first look at the information, evaluate what's being said, and then say, I need to make sure it matches everything else in the theology of the Bible, okay? That's a real responsible way to study your verses. Don't just get caught up in what's being said. Like I said, I have a very hard time with that at times because I'm so involved in the few verses I'm looking at, or each day when I type this commentary, I'm looking at one verse, and then I I analyze it, I see where you know the wording is taking me, and then I have to stand back and I have to say, how does this fit in with what Peter just said? How does this fit in with what it says in the book of Hebrews, okay? Does this have any parallel to the book of Hosea, okay? And that's an important thing to do. So uh, make sure when you're studying the Bible to read the verse and then to think about what is it telling us in a bigger picture, okay? Um, I'll read that again. This is, verse is a continuation of the previous one. I read the two verses together. So here we are. Um, the verbs serve and wait are both infinitive, and thus they reflect the condition in which the Thessalonians stood by turning to God from idols. In particular, Paul will focus on the, coming, the second coming of Christ in this epistle. And that's why he said, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And that's why he goes into this great detail about the coming of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians. If we want to know about the rapture, is it explained in the Bible or do we trust a Jehovah's Witness and say it's never mentioned in the Bible? All we need to do is to go and look in the Bible. Okay, and we go to 1 Thessalonians and that's where we get much of our rapture theology. We take that in connection with one, you know, I, when I posted my last uh, I do it once a year, once every whatever, whenever we just need to do something other than a regular prophecy update, I will do the timing of the rapture. And I repeat it. I've repeated it a few times. And the last time I did it, I noted that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the rapture. And then I said, 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture. And one of the people that commented on Rumble said, well, 1 Thessalonians isn't speaking about the rapture. It's you know, they get so into not believing that they can't, and the way he explained it was just, it was almost laughable, but that's what people do. They get this, every, well, well, one of my friends, I won't say who, one of my friends today said, um, everybody is a specialist in theology. Anyway, and uh, I've said that many, many times, and uh, he repeated it back to me today. Everybody knows theology better than you do. And my answer to him was, especially when it comes to the rapture. Everybody knows all about the rapture, even if that's the only thing they know in the Bible is the rapture verses. And you can't do that because the Bible's a big book and there are other things that the rapture builds upon, okay? So, uh, yeah, everybody is a specialist. And one of the other things that everybody is a specialist on, everybody is the Nephilim. 
Oh boy, I gotta tell you. Yeah, well, trust me on this. If you got a view on the Nephilim, there are gonna be a hundred people calling you a heretic because your view is wrong. Anyway. So um, this is the first salvo though of, of uh, rapture. This, this verse right here. Well, it is, it about, no, it's not really because he doesn't address, he just says, and the coming of Jesus, and that could mean anything right at this point. Day. Yeah, that's true, but at this point, it doesn't, right. I wouldn't include that in the rapture verses simply no. because he is coming. What does that mean? Because people that deny the rapture still say he's coming, okay? They just deny that he's coming one, two, or three times, okay? Right. Whatever, or four times, or ten times. So, um, yeah, but it, it is a first hint of him talking about it. I'll say that. That's correct. But he's not really talking about the rapture yet. But he is coming to deliver us from the wrath to come, which is a good point, because people actually deny that. We're right. going to go through the tribulation, and Jesus comes at the end, or he comes at the middle of the tribulation, and so they deny that he's... And So once again, you know, it has to be taken with what it actually says in the Bible. And one Thess I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2 will give you the best timeline of the rapture. That's the timeline of it, okay? But the actual events are 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, um, I won't say it because I don't want to give it away. Somebody's got to do a... Uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, it'll be exciting. We got something coming up in a, maybe another five sermons. It's, anyway, we'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, the verb serve and wait, I read that. Okay, yeah. Um, even there, oh, I'm going to start this again. In particular, Paul will focus on the second coming of Christ in this epistle, and so the condition of waiting is highlighted here now. Even, even their serving is set in anticipation of his coming again, and that's the way it should be with all of us, okay? If we're serving Jesus, what is the point if he's not coming again? Right. Right? <laughs> what are we waiting for, to die and just go to heaven? He's actually coming to take us to heaven, all right? Uh, Jesus is the one that is doing all these things for us, okay? And when we take the Lord's Supper, we say it every single week, we take the Lord's Supper remembering his death until he comes. The whole, everything is contingent on the coming again of Jesus. I would go so far as to say that the return of Jesus Christ is one of the primary doctrines which could be considered heretical if it's taught wrong. And I'm not talking about rapture as opposed, it's just if somebody denies that Christ is coming again, okay, there's, there's no way to get around that as a heresy. Christ is coming again, okay? Um, if a, a, a Christian says, well, I believe Jesus died, and you know they can come up with all kinds of crazy things in their head, but if they don't believe that he is coming again, that person is a heretic, okay? And I don't say that very uh, easily. You, know, you have to have one of the, the things, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that is, will lead to heresy if you get it wrong. The virgin birth is one of them, okay? The deity of Christ is one of them. The all-sufficient atonement for sins is one of them. The uh, resurrection of Christ obviously is one of them. The return of Jesus Christ. There's only a few core doctrines where you will actually devolve into heresy if you get them wrong. All the rest of them are just bad doctrine, okay? But the return of Jesus Christ is one of the points that will immediately tell you if a person is a heretic. If he says Christ isn't coming again, drop him. Can we define heresy again? Like heresy is something, a bad doctrine will not keep a person from being saved. And I'm talking about the next person. A heresy will. 
if a person teaches a heresy and that person accepts it, that person is believed a false Jesus and therefore is believed a false gospel. It will keep the next person from being saved. And that's why I say a heretic can be a saved person. I have no idea if John Hagee is saved or not, okay? But he teaches heresy, okay? And therefore, the people that listen to him and accept his doctrine in certain areas are not going to be saved, okay? He teaches actual heresy. But uh, that's a different issue, and there are lots of people out there like that. They may be saved, but they're teaching something, well, the next people will not be saved because of what they're teaching, okay? Um, teaching that there are two gospels means that you're a her heretic, because there's one gospel, and you're teaching people that there are two ways to come to Jesus Christ. One for the Jew, one for the Gentile, okay? That's a heresy, okay? But uh, that's enough of that. that. That is an answer to your question. It'll keep the next person from being saved. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, were Christ not to get, come again, and if uh, we were not to be gathered to him at his coming, then what would be the point of serving him? This serving in anticipation of his coming is more specifically detailed in chapter 4. That's where the rapture verses are, just before the magnificent details of the rapture, which are provided there. This is what Paul now refers to with the words, and to wait for his son from heaven. It is the great and blessed hope of the Christian. As a matter of fact, I've got one friend, she emails me quite often, and the last thing her email always says is, maybe today okay oh and it reminds me because i get so caught up in whatever i'm doing at the time i kind of forget that and then i get re-excited maybe today you know we just don't know we believe that christ is coming again and that he will lead us to a new and better life than anything we could ever now imagine it is also the purpose of taking the lord's supper as it says in 1 Corinthians 11:26, which I'm not going to read you because Burke just quoted it a minute ago. We observe the Lord's Supper, remembering his death until he comes, okay? And the whole point of that is remembering his death, okay? That's why we take the Lord's Supper. He did this so that we could do that, okay? Um, and so it, it's an important thing to stop every week and to just be quiet and to think on what Christ did and said, Christ, Jesus, I have offended you in the past week. I, you know, I had one of my other friends, he emailed me and he said what a lot of people say in their emails, okay? And I'm not giving names, so I'm not giving away any personal information, but this is something that a lot of people email me. I, I hear about testimonies. I hear about people that have, you know, given up drinking or they've given up this or they've given up that. And he says, I, I still struggle with being angry or some people will say I still struggle with, you know, I've I got this sexual sin in my mind. I can't get rid of it or I still struggle with this or I still struggle with that. And I said, that ought to tell you that you love the Lord and he understands your battle in this flesh, okay? We all have something that we struggle with internally, some of us externally, and the fact is that grace is grace. All right, and if we didn't struggle, then we'd be walking up to this table saying, I'm worthy of this, okay? Which is the whole point of stopping and saying, I'm unworthy of this and I thank you that you've allowed me to do it anyway, okay? If you have the attitude that you're not struggling and that you're all okay with God, the problem actually rests with you, okay? That's, I just, I, if that offends you, I'm sorry, but uh, the, that's why we take that every week is to remind us that we are not worthy of this and that he continues to forgive us despite ourselves. This is the greatness of God in Christ, okay? So, um, uh, this is, uh, yeah, this is what Paul refers to with the words in the way for his son from heaven, I read that. It is Christ Jesus the Lord 
whom he raised from the dead. Paul's words, whom he raised from the dead, that we remember in this sacrament. Okay, I know a lot of people don't like the word sacrament, but it just simply means what it is. Okay, but they come out of Catholicism and they hear about all these, what is it, seven sacraments or something? I believe it's uh, Unction and blah, blah, blah. They've got all these things that they add on. It's, you know, Catholicism is Jesus plus, it's the plus religion. It's Jesus plus Mary and it's um, the word plus the Bible, I mean the church, and it's this plus, the, everything is plus with them, okay? Keeping it simple and keeping it what God says in his word, it is Jesus plus nothing, okay? It is the word plus nothing. Now, I'm not opposed to citing uh, historical events in uh, sermons, but I do that a lot less than I used to. I used to say, well, you know, the Jews' view on this was this and blah, blah, blah. And now, it's just the word is so rich that it just speaks for itself. So I, I do that a lot less, but sometimes it's necessary to cite some extra biblical thing. Um, and I'm not talking about citing scholars that are talking about their opinion of scripture. You know, I do that all the time, but uh, talking about people that say, well, this is, and it has nothing to do with the Bible, it's, it's really superfluous to what the Bible is saying then, okay? Uh, the real problem in that issue, the, hey, thank you. All right, have a lovely evening, my beautiful daughter-in-law. Um, the real problem with that, adding things in that are not in the Bible, the biggest area where that is a problem is rapture theology, okay? There, everybody throws in everything that's not found into the Bible, and they say, well, the Jews taught this, and the Jews do this, and their blah, blah, blah says this, and it has nothing, nothing to do with what the Bible says about the rapture, zero. They're taking something that's not biblical, that is cultural, and they're shoving it into their rapture theology. And that's where all of this, this stuff comes from. You know, it, it just goes on and on and on with that. And there's no end to it if you allow that. You've got to let the Bible speak for itself. And there are very, very limited number of verses on the rapture. Okay, there's not a lot of them. In the Old Testament, there are some types and pictures of it. And I did the sermon on that, and you can go watch that. But uh, you don't want to take anything extra biblical and shove it into the feasts of the Lord. That's another area, not just the rapture, but the feasts of the Lord. Okay, the Jews do this, and therefore that belongs in there. It doesn't work that way. The Lord gave the parameters and the definitions of the feasts of the Lord. That's all that we need. We don't need to throw anything else into that and say, see, well, this is what we should be doing at the Feast of Passover, or this is what we should be doing at the Feast. That's not a part of what God is telling us. He's telling us about Jesus, and we're adding in all of this extra stuff that is irrelevant. And of course, we're going to have a faulty view of what the, uh, the Shemitah, same thing, okay? Uh, all kinds of teachings about the Shemitah from Deuteronomy that have nothing to do with the simple verses that are in Deuteronomy. People have written books about it, okay? They come up with every single year, it's the year of, you know, the 50th year of Jubilee. We don't know what the 50th year of Jubilee is. We have no idea. Even in biblical times, they wouldn't know because the Bible wasn't focusing on that. It was telling us a principle about Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the principle is, go back and watch the sermon on that, and that's all that you need to know. It never mentions the Jubilee or the 50-year observance ever again in Scripture. That should tell you that he's telling you one thing for a reason and to look for that one thing and nothing else, okay? How do we know that we can't know what the Jubilee year is? Because every year somebody says, well, it's the year of Jubilee. Well, if that's true, then every year is the year of Jubilee. The way you can know that there is not 
a year of Jubilee known to us is because the Bible never says when the Jubilee started. Did it start with the year they entered the promised land? Did it start with the year it was subdued? Did it, it, it never tells us, never says a word. Secondly, it never tells Israel if the Jubilee stops when they're in exile and they were exiled for 70 years. So do you continue to count the Jubilee or do you stop and then start again when you're in land because it only pertains to the land. And then they were exiled for 2000 years and they came back into the land. Does it start again on that year? Does it start again in the year that they, they recaptured Jerusalem? We don't know. There's no way to know. So if you're reading books about the Jubilee or the Shemitah, you're wasting your time. Jesus is the subject of those things and God told us and that's all we need to know. So don't get caught up in those things because they are irrelevant. They have nothing to do with scripture, okay? I understand, it's very fun to go through that type of stuff and to say, this is the year of the Jubilee and so we can count this many days and the rapture is gonna happen. It never pans out because God didn't give us that information. He didn't give us enough information to know anything about the Jubilee except what is recorded about the Jubilee in the books of Moses. That's it, nothing more. Okay, so you just have to stop there and say, God has given us pictures of Jesus and that's what he wants us to focus on. Okay, um, there you go. That's just Charlie Garrett's spiel. If you disagree, that's fine. <laughs> you can be as wrong as you want. 5th of November, that's the day, the 5th of November. 5th of November, November. we're out of here. And okay. I trust his. I trust him implicitly, so that's it. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, where are we? In, we're in 110, yes, okay, so. Um, he raised him from the dead. Uh, I'll read this again. Whom he raised from the dead that we remember this sacrament. We proclaim his death until he comes because he is alive. That's the great thing about Jesus. We're remembering his death until he comes. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. And so we remember that death, that wonderful time when he atoned for our sins until the day he comes again. Okay. Otherwise, if he were still dead, he would not be coming. But God raised him from the dead. Even Jesus, Paul's words, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And rather than deliver and to come, it should say in the present tense, is delivering and is coming. The verbs are present participles. Jesus gave his life for us, bearing the wrath that we deserve for the sins of this life. It is his cross which paid the penalty for our sins and covered them. Our sins are covered. Eternal salvation. All your sins. Every sin you ever did commit, every sin that you've committed today, every sin that you will ever commit is under the blood. If that's not true, then you have no security at all and your, your salvation is lost. Okay? You either lost it yesterday or you lost it sometime today between lunch and coming to Bible class. Your salvation is lost. Okay? It doesn't work that way. He has delivered us, he is delivering us, and he is coming, all right? It is his cross which paid this penalty, and because of this, there is no coming wrath for us. For those who reject him, however, that is all that can be expected. There cannot be an expectation of anything else. You know, I live for today, I, you know, I, I'm 22 years ago, I had a top 
made for, I made a smoker, I laid the bricks, I had to get all those, uh, uh, you know, fire bricks and line the inside of this thing. And so I made this thing 20 years ago, 22 years ago, and actually it was 23 years ago, but it's uh, just the beginning of the year and then I had to have the top made. So the thing was, we'll say 22 and a half years old. And it finally, it's just done. Okay, so I had to have another one made. I took it downtown yesterday. I had an hour. Boy, Sarasota has changed. I can't believe just driving out there. Last time I went out in that direction, out by um, Palmer, you go down Cattleman to Palmer and then it branches off. Okay, I haven't been there in a long time. And everything is like four and six lanes in Sarasota. Mm -hmm. Cattleman Road, when I was a kid, was the the most difficult road you could drive on in Sarasota. It was like this. And it was all cow pastures and there was nothing. On this side, there were uh, orange trees. That was it. There was nothing. Literally. And now it's everything is paved. Everything is being built up. So I got out there and my friend that I went to high school with, I came out and the first thing I said to him is I said, I can't believe we're in the same town. I can't believe that this is the town that we grew up in. It's, it's completely different. Anyway, so I'm living for you know today i gotta have a new top for my smoker and you know, i gotta go out and get this thing so um uh but at the same time i'm thinking i may never get to use this thing i may never get to use this jesus may come right now and this goes on in my head all day long i'm driving down to buy something to do work at the mall tomorrow i went down to uh uh lowe's before class today and I, I got to do this because this is something I got to do, you know. And uh, at the same time, I'm thinking I might not have to do that stupid job tomorrow. So I, it's just, I, it, it's just going through my mind constantly. And then the first thought that comes to my head after I come up with that is, how bad it's going to be when we leave. And all these people have no idea what's coming. He's delivering us from the wrath to come. They have no idea when the economy of this world collapses. Have a wonderful evening, you guys. When the economy of this world collapses, there will be no money to keep the power on. We may have it an hour a day. We may have it eight hours a day. We have no idea. But there will be no money to do that. When you don't have power, you don't have water because the power runs the water pumps. Okay, and eventually that's just gonna end. And so now all these people are dependent on water coming into a house that doesn't have wells. There's no rivers around. There's gonna be no sewer after a little while because the power won't run the lift stations. Florida is very flat, right? It doesn't, if you live on a hill and the wastewater plants in the valley, you don't have much to worry about. But if you're in Florida, there is no time in a lift station. You've got a, an hour and that lift station is going to be full. And if the power doesn't drain it back down and pump it on, everything after that backs up. And within two hours, there will be no sewer anywhere in Florida if you're, not, if you're here and there's no money to pay for these things. And this is going to be almost the immediate state of the world. Think of the people that live in high rises. They'll have no water coming up and they will have to depart those high rises immediately. I mean, this is just the way life is going to be. And that's just the very beginning of what's coming on this world. And they have no idea that this is coming. And this goes through my mind all the time I think of this. I might not have to go to work tomorrow, but what about all these schlubs out here that don't realize the wrath that is coming on them? And it's a self-inflicted wound. 
I it just so think about it. if you think about it from that perspective, this is not going to be a happy place. People, are, I want to go through the tribulation, and you know, I want to. It's not clear thinking. It's simply not. We're not. We're no longer set up in this world to exist the way that they did 150 years ago. 150 years ago, 80% of all of the population of the world lived in the country, and 20% lived in the city. It's exactly the opposite now. It's actually more than 80% live in cities and very few live in the country. They have no idea what's coming on them. None. Okay? If you think this is stretching it, let me know, but I just don't think it is. When the world collapses and there's no finances to pay things, people are going to be killing themselves everywhere just to survive. It's going to be brutal. So this is how it's going to be, folks. Um, uh, where was it? The wrath to come. It is his cross which paid the penalty for our sins and covered them. Because of this, there is no coming wrath for us, for those who reject him. However, that is all that can be expected. God is righteous, and he must judge sin. It is his judgment upon man, which is the wrath to come. That's what's coming. It is an important consideration, though, that Paul is tying in the coming of the Lord for his people with wrath, which is coming. It is true that we are individually saved from God's wrath in judgment. But Paul, in so tying the coming of the Lord with wrath, is pointing to a particular wrath, which will be poured out on the whole world at a specific time. He will build on this thought in chapter 5 and also in 2 Thessalonians. Christ saves us from individual wrath, but he will also deliver us from the collective wrath, which is coming upon the whole world at some future point. The whole world is going to face this. Life application. It is rather sad that many Christians claim the rapture will come before war or calamity will occur in their own land. We've been hearing this in America all along. We're not going through that. This is especially true in America. They act as if we are exempt from such things. This is naive and it is harmful. Christians have been butchered for 2,000 years and if the Lord tarries, we here in this nation may face great persecution and death. The left, and I typed this, what, how many, seven years ago you said? The left, even in America, would like nothing more than to exterminate faithful Bible-believing Christians. And we see it more and more and more every single Sunday. If this happens, we must be prepared for it. And I'll tell you what, I've said this at least a thousand times, and I never exaggerate, that there were six, six, maybe five Republican governors that saved this nation from going down that path. If they weren't, it's true, if they weren't in office at the time, we would not be facing the same nation that we are facing right now. And all of the things that came upon Canada would have come upon us, but they'd still be here. They would not be going away, okay? It didn't happen here. Canada is starting to get repaired because they see that we are, okay? That would not be the case. They would have taken advantage of every single thing that they could have during that to take away the Christian rights in this nation and to eliminate us. If anybody thinks I'm making that up, they weren't paying attention. They were not paying. You know what Ray said to me? He was out at the house to pick something up for me a day ago. And he said, you know what? I used to listen to the people that had all these conspiracies. And he said, I thought, well, I don't want to go down that path. And he said, they were right on every single thing that they were saying. They were right on every single thing. And he didn't obviously go with the ultra whack jobs. He just went with the people that sure. were, you know. But he said, everything that they said 
was absolutely correct. And he said, I, I have to kind of reevaluate. You know, <laughs> if that's true, then who are we believing? You know, so it, it, you just have to pay attention in life. I'm not one to get into all kinds of crazy conspiracies, and I'm definitely not one to go down where a lot of these prophecy teachers go down. It's just not sane thinking. But there is, you know, the point where it dawned on me when I knew it, and this was it before anybody else was talking about it. Rush Limbaugh, it took him another two and a half months to say what I said during the updates, is the day that Trump passed the USMCA, where the trade between Canada and Mexico and America, he, it never made the news because all of a sudden, that day, and I said, this is a distraction from what Donald Trump has done. And I said, this is only going to get worse. And I said, during that update, and that was right at the beginning of it. And everything after that followed. And I kept saying, don't believe these people. You know, and of course, people are standing eight feet away from each other and they don't want to talk. And I went to Lowe's six. today. Well, six, if you're if you're short. If you're tall, then you have to no, be eight, eight feet. Different. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, when I was at Lowe's, I think the same thing every day because I have to walk down the parking lot and I have to get to my car where I always park in the same place. Okay. And when I get to this place, I think the same thing every time. When this thing began, I remember everybody was scared to death. They're in there buying all this crazy stuff. And I went in there to get whatever I needed for them all. But they're buying all this stuff. And everybody had to look on their faces. And they were way apart from each other. Even in husband and wife, nobody was near each other. And Steve, the pressure washer guy, he was there. And I walk up to him. I give him a big hug. And everybody stopped. And they were like, they couldn't believe it. They were like, what are they doing? And we stood there and we talked for like 15 minutes. And I, got, I said, I'm just not going to let this affect my life. I'm just not going to live my life like this. I just, you know, anyway. But now it's all coming undone. It's all coming undone because of about six Republican governors. Right. Mm -hmm. But I did see a lady at Lowe's today in her car all alone, fully masked up. And I thought, some people will never get over this one. What you got, Burke? I want to know if the... Deuteronomy 6, 4. Yeah. What did you say that was earlier in your talk here? The, the matrix or something like you said it was? Instead of the Shema? The Shema. Shema. Okay. okay. You mentioned something about that, but you had an end on it. Early in your teaching. You mean today? Yeah, yeah. I didn't talk about Deuteronomy 6 4. Did? I did talk about the Shemitah. Not the Shema. The Shemitah, the, the year of release. Shemitah. Shemitah, Shemitah, okay, well, yeah, okay, the year of release, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, I didn't yeah, know no, 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 not the Shema, the Shemitah, Shemitah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't know what it was, so that's, I thought it was Okay, better. it's the year of release, yeah, okay, and the guy wrote a whole book about it, and everybody bought millions of copies of it, and it has nothing to, nothing to do with what the Bible teaches, nothing. And everybody reads this and they get fascinated by this guy's writings and it has nothing to do, literally nothing to do with what the Bible teaches about it. Go back and watch that sermon again. It is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. I have one other observation. Yes. In Acts. In Acts. You don't read a sermon unless you read about the resurrection. You, right. You, you read the sermons and you check me out and see. I don't know what you're talking about though. Every sermon is in the book of Acts. It talks about oh, absolutely. You're talking about their speaking, like when Peter speaks. and when yeah. pa Yes, every single sermon deals with the resurrection. Yes. That's true. Yes. It's the central point of our faith. If Jesus didn't come out of the grave, it doesn't make any difference if he died for our sins. You're absolutely right about that. 
Okay, so life application. It is rather sad that many Christians claim the rapture will come before war or calamity will occur in the land. I read that. Okay, uh, the, the here's where I stopped. The left, even in America, would like nothing more to exterminate faithful Bible-believing Christians. If this happens, we must be prepared for it. But there is a great time of wrath beyond our ability to imagine which is coming upon the world. Before that time comes, the Lord will return for his people at the rapture. Whether you believe that or not, if you're watching this video right now and you don't believe in a rapture, I'm sorry for you, but that's what the Bible teaches. We will be taken out of here before the time, the collective wrath of God is poured out on the world, okay? Before that time comes, the Lord will appear for uh, return for his people. This is our hope, and this is what the Bible promises. Okay, uh, there's no point in starting chapter two. I wanted to. We only did two verses today, but we got into too many tangents. And if we go, we, we've only got 10 minutes and we're not going to get the first one done. Yes. I actually wanted to ask something. Okay. I don't know if you have uh, spoken about it or not. Um, when I read Thessalonians in the past, I was very surprised by the repetition of the uh, name God and Jesus Christ, like, just a lot of rep because it's such a small book right it has so many again and again, and again and again and again and i was wondering if you related to that i don't think i have that in my commentary i don't remember having said that but it's a good point is that he does say that he mentions god 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 he mentions jesus 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 yeah. and you know every time he says something there is an importance in it yeah. but i don't know I, I just right off the top of my head i can't remember if i ever addressed that individually of all of the examples okay. Okay, um, uh, I just, I don't want to say something and find out I'm wrong, and I'd have to go back and do a whole study just on that concept. No, it's but, fine. I was just yeah. curious if you yeah. have a But you're right. That, that's a good insight as he does do that. And, you know, there are certain books where Paul will mention something again and again and again, you know, especially like Galatians when it comes to law observance. He mentions law observance throughout all of his epistles, but Galatians is the big focus you know, we are not under law. And he explains it from like 4,000 different angles. He's so careful to be precise in what he's talking about so that nobody makes the error that we should somehow go back under the law. And yet, it's like the most common thing in the world. It just, people just wanting. I, I was thinking of my friend today because he's he works in this General Gulf Gate area and he's a guy I've known for years and years and years. And he attends a really legalistic King James-only church. And I think, you know, he's such a normal guy. He's just such a great guy. And I was thinking, because I, you know, I drive through here, and sometimes I go this way, and sometimes I come to church whichever way, but I went by where he works, and I thought, you know, what is it that makes people want to be in bondage? Why do we, it, and all of us have it in us in some way or another. There's something that says, I need this type control in my life. Some people marry an overbearing woman, okay? Some people uh, want to go to a King James only church that says no dancing and no this and no, nothing in the Bible about these things. You know, some people get into cults and they literally, their lives are controlled, everything they do. What is it that makes us want to do that? And I don't know. Because I think it's because people cannot believe that God would forgive them. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it, that's, it that's the main thing. I was just going to say that we cannot accept grace. But why is it that even if we can't accept grace, why do we want bondage in place of it? You just say, well, I don't, you know, but there, we, we impose bondage on us in some way or another in our life. You know, 
I put myself in my own bondage because I work too much, and I understand that. I, 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 I find myself every single day of the week at the end of myself. I, I've got eight minutes and 37 seconds to get to this place, and I do this constantly, and I'd like to be able to stop that. So that may, might be my imposed bondage. It's just always time pressure. Okay. Maybe it's because of Romans 6. Like in Romans 6 says, we were slaves to sin, right. now we're slaves to righteousness, but Maybe we want since birth, we're used to being slaves to sin. In bondage. So, in, in, in bondage. So we're trying to escape that and be more like Christ and become Christ and be free in grace with every day. But, but it's we not like impose overnight. something else. It's so hard to get rid of those but, things, like getting rid of the old right. self. Getting rid of that may be, but you know, I, I worked, I was the same way I worked before meeting Christ as I am now. So that is something apart from Christ, but it could be. But the people that get into legalistic churches where they, it's not in the Bible, it has nothing to do with the word, and yet they're they're not doing things or they're doing things that, and it's just bondage. And I think, why do we do that? Anyway, I, you know, it's just me trying to figure it out, but people want to be in law-observant churches. They want to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, and if you're not doing it, I'm better than you because I'm doing it, and yet it's just imposing bondage on you that is what Paul calls it. So anyway, think about it. Maybe you'll come to a bet. Burke's got his hand up. He's got an answer for us. No, I don't. Oh, he doesn't have an answer for us. Totally oh, okay. Well, we got four we talked, minutes. We talked about the Trinity earlier. Right. To find the Trinity. Right. The last words... Last verse, Second Corinthians. That's right. And he says, "The Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the, the fellowship, the fellowship of, of the Holy Spirit." Spirit. You, know, you got them all right there. You got them all right there. So there. You'll remember that because I interrupted you. That's okay, but that's right. <laughs> that's one of a two or three verses that he has where he includes the three. But that's the best one, I think. What is that? Second Corinthians. Latin, it's how he closes the book. And so it mentions, all, it doesn't say the Father, it says God. But God is the Father. Everybody accepts that. There's no doubt. There's the nobody. Yeah, the, yeah, love God, yeah. the love of God instead of the love of the Father, whatever. But everybody accepts that God is Father. And so now they just have to say, well, you know, I accept that the Holy Spirit is God and that the Son is God as well. And But anyway, uh, we better close. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you for the the uh, promise and the hope of being delivered from the wrath to come because it is coming and Lord we know that uh, you will deliver us from it and we're just very very thankful for that in our lives a lot of uh, smaller issues that we kind of get upset about in our own lives and our own theology but the real important ones are that you have done the work that you are all sufficient for us and that uh, you are coming again to deliver us and we thank you for that hope that we possess we know that it's true because your word says it's true lord we lay these things at your feet and uh, uh in praise in glory in honor and we await that day when we can do it face to face in reality may that day be so in jesus name we pray amen all right and i'll say goodbye to the folks online right now and then we'll wave goodbye because i know the the sound is going to go off so let's see here. We're going to go to uh, break.